This is City AM Unregulated. I'm Emma Hazlitt. And I'm Zach Meir. On this week's show, The Art of Being Idle. We're sort of encouraged to fill spare moments with updating profiles, liking things. We're joined by author Tom Hodgkinson. We are obsessed by productivity. And that's because we had something called the Industrial Revolution. The joys of spreadsheets. And and my accountant says um, what people don't realise is that spreadsheets are a thing of great beauty. Because you can change one number and all the other numbers change. Welcome to City AM Unregulated. and welcome to City AM Unregulated. This week we're joined by Tom Hodgkinson, founder of The Idler, whose mission is to help people live better lives. Multi-author of books How to Be Idle, How to Be Free and the Idle Parent, his latest book, Business for Bohemians, attempts to guide those of us who want more freedom in our working lives. So Tom, that is basically the dream. How do we achieve it? That's right. That is basically the dream. And the title of this book, Business for Bohemians, comes from my attempt to unify these two apparently different worlds, business and bohemianism. So bohemianism is really about um, some kind of search for human freedom, isn't it? And like uh, living the life you want to lead, not being dragged into the nine to five, working for a large corporation and becoming what used to be called a wage slave. Um, so bohemianism is about sort of escaping the nine to five, staying up all night in Soho and that sort of thing and not, not thinking about the next day. I saw a lot of people like that when I was younger. They were called trustafarians. They, they already had money, but they pretended as though they were like doing something, but actually they didn't really need to and they weren't really doing anything. Yeah. Is there so a difference? That, that's, um, that's the dream. They're, they're, they're the lucky bohemians with money. Most of them don't have money. Um, and we could think about sort of, I suppose the ultimate image of it is sort of 1950s Soho. Um, places like the Colony Room and where the artists would go. Um, I mean, years ago, I interviewed Geoffrey Bernard, the journalist, who was a great, you know, Soho bohemian. And he said, um, really, the the life was characterised by enjoying the everyday and sharing. Um, if you didn't have any money and someone else had just been paid, that person would buy the meal that night and didn't think about, you know, having the favour returned. So there's that sort of spirit of the poet's life, I suppose, the philosopher's life. Um, and how can that be married up with, you know, making a living? That's what that's what the book is about. And when we started the Idler magazine, I went to interview the writer Will Self, and he said, you know, being an idler and being in a small business per- person um, are two total opposites. You know, how can you reconcile them? But actually, the entrepreneur um, is also a freedom seeker, and that's the whole point. So somebody who is lazy or difficult... Um, ornery, uh, grumpy when kind of stuck in a nine to five can really fly when they're kind of released uh, into entrepreneurialism. And, you know, I went to interview for this book, the entrepreneur Luke Johnson, who made fortunes out of things like Pizza Express, um, Giraffe restaurants. And he's also been the chairman of Channel 4. He was the chairman of Channel 4. And has a column in the Sunday Times now. And his columns are all about, you know, it's such a shame that there are so many talented people who could be entrepreneurs running their own businesses, but they're stuck in, in his world, uh, banking and the law, which he, he called posh slavery. Do you think the city is full of frustrated bohemians? I think everybody's a frustrated bohemian in a way. I mean, we're all philosophers and poets and artists at some level. Everybody's creative. Everybody has some kind of creative work, even if that just comes out in cooking or gardening, you know, or, or your hobbies. Um, and we all like to think and talk about, you know, the world that we live in. Uh, 
discussion of politics is a form of philosophy, really, isn't it? You know, because we're thinking about what kind of world we'd like to live in. Um, so, yes, it's just a question of whether you want to kind of completely release yourself from the, the shackles of, um, you know, sort of 16 hours a day in the bank or not. And that's an individual decision. But isn't that the thing that you, I mean, you're an example of your own philosophy, let's say, that you, you know, you, you, had, a, you had a career before you dropped out of that career and then you started writing books from your North Devon uh, bolt hole. And creative arts, uh, if you can make money out of them, are the, the, the ultimate bohemian lifestyle, because you write your book and then for the next three years you can swan around Soho enjoying yourself, if you sell any books. Obviously. <laughs> yeah, if you sell any books. It's, it's, it's a lovely dream, but um, as you said at the beginning, it's, it's an incredibly difficult dream to realise. I mean, you know, most people think, well, OK, I'm going to get a, a job which is reasonably OK, which doesn't sort of totally depress me. And then perhaps I'll kind of express myself in my leisure time. You know, that's obviously an option. Um, and then big business people, they're not really interested, I don't think, so much in the product they're selling particularly. Most big business people, real business people, they're interested in, you know, the process of business, making money. Alan Sugar, Richard Branson, big entrepreneurs, Luke Johnson. I mean, they, they, they'll, they'll invest in anything. Um, if they think there's an opportunity there. They're not particularly passionate about vodka or pizzas or whatever it might be. But there's this other breed of person, and they're on the rise, the people who want to make a living out of doing the things that they enjoy. you know. And that's who this book is aimed at. That's not an easy thing to do because, um, to an extent, the, I suppose, artistic temperament um, is a little bit scared of hard work and spreadsheets, which the entrepreneurs and the real business people spend a lot of time poring over. So what I've tried to do here in this book is to sort of demystify um, some of the basic tools of business. I'd like to move on to the, the importance of idleness because it's something that you've spent a lot of your career talking about. How important is it that we have these periods of languorousness? Well, I think it's very important for lots of different reasons. I think it's very important actually for your mental health to not overwork and to allow yourself time to... Do nothing in a way... What do I mean by do nothing? I mean things like, you know, going for a long walk for two hours with old friends, you know, um, reading. I don't mean by idleness sort of giving up on life and watching Jeremy Kyle all day in your underpants. So that is a good way to spend your time. Well, that's, that's a reasonable option. <laughs> Some of your time. Um, and if anyone wants to do that, I certainly wouldn't try to stop them. <laughs> um, but no, it's, you know, yeah, I think it's very important. I think and neuroscientists are now saying it's very important for the brain, actually. When you rest and doze or sleep or nap or meditate or practice mindfulness or all these different forms of idleness, different parts of your brain uh, heal themselves, different parts of your brain light up. I think idleness is very important to the creative process and we're all more or less creative people, even in full-time jobs which might not appear to be creative, often creative solutions are needed. Creative ideas come not when you're staring at a screen but in odd moments in the bath, you know, going for a walk, when you're sort of dropping off, when you're on your bicycle, you know. And another important reason uh, to be idle is that idleness is almost the same as culture. You know, so it's it's going to the cinema, it's going, going to the theatre, it's watching music. That's what we do in our leisure time or our idle time. And those people who entertain us, the creative people, the artists and actors and writers 
they have to be semi-idle as well because, you know, they have to be creative. I kind of worry that, you know, I, I sit in front of three screens every day. I've got my phone next to me and then I go home, I watch TV, I've still got my phone next to me, maybe my tablet as well. I worry that the, the number of screens in front of us is kind of inversely proportional to the amount of creativity that we have. Is that going to be a problem for creativity in the future? I think that can be a problem. I I don't think it's insurmountable, but it's definitely true that we're surrounded by these distractions. We're sort of encouraged to fill spare moments with updating profiles, liking things, putting a bit more work into our Instagram, a bit more work into our Facebook profile, or a bit more work into into our tweeting or whatever it might be. So spare moments where... In the past, you might have been stuck at a bus stop for 10 minutes and you just had to stare into space and do nothing. Now you're fiddling with your phone um, and doing some useful work, updating your um, updating your settings or whatever it might be. Um, but, you know, you, it's not impossible to switch these things off, is it? Do you think we're obsessed with productivity? I'm always talking about to my team about how to be more productive. Yeah, we are obsessed by productivity. And that's because... We had something called the Industrial Revolution. You know, society changed quite fundamentally about 250 years ago. We went from being agricultural to being uh, urban population, from working in the fields to working in factories. And the factories demanded hard work and long days because the people who had bought the machines had invested a lot of money in them, the mill owners, and they wanted to get a maximum return. Similar situation today, really. So the bosses, and we have... The bosses might have shareholders, you know, so they want their company to grow and all these sorts of things. So we're still interested in productivity. I don't actually think that's such a terrible thing. But what I do question is that longer hours equal greater productivity. You know, you can be quite efficient um, on a a shorter working day. And work doesn't have to be organised in such a way that we work long hours. I mean... Companies like Toyota, for example, are experimenting with shorter working weeks and shorter working days, different kinds of shift patterns. So I think there are ways of um, being productive while not killing yourself. But do you think, I mean, you know, going back to the, the mill owners and everything else, I don't see that we've made any progress whatsoever. I mean, we've got the, the mill owners and I look at the people riding delivery bikes and the Uber drivers and everything else. I mean, their, their work is... Is is actually it's not it's you know it's, it's horrific. It's badly paid, and it's uh, it may be part of the new gig economy, which sounds uh, much more glamorous than it is. But pay pay has gone down so much in real terms. You've got to do two or three jobs now, whereas before you had one. I think so, that's, so that's, it's actually going away from idle. It's going to the opposite of whatever that is. It's uh, your chock a block. It's it's a mixture. Certainly, um, you know. Uh, if I was a hardcore socialist, I would be absolutely horrified by what you call the lack of progress made in, in terms of employee um, conditions. You know, um, as you say, turning up for work as a delivery driver, um, you have absolutely no kind of security or anything like that. All these gains that were made across the 19th century and into the 20th century um, in terms of you know shortening the working day, improving conditions... You know, in 1820, most workers had one day holiday a year. You know, you were working sort of 14 to 16 hours a day. And the the, the genius of um, Airbnb and Uber and the like are that, you know, in the old days, it would be seen as a sort of a mark of shame or poverty if you were forced into renting out your spare room. 
or taking a part-time job as a cab driver. Now it's kind of cool and hip. Now it's cool and hip. They've, they've pulled off this incredible feat, you know, of PR. Like, whoa, yeah, I'm a Deliveroo driver and I use Airbnb. That just means you kind of basically haven't got a job or you've got no money. You're, you're desperate for cash. I, I've done it myself. I, we, we've done Airbnb um, at low points in the uh, sort of family cash cycle. But on the other hand, I'm sure we've all spoken to Uber drivers who say that they actually quite enjoyed that sort of freedom. You know, some people like the freelance life. I've never personally wanted a job. You know, I, I hated having a job. I didn't want paid holidays um, and fixed hours. I wanted to be independent, even if it meant that I had to be more responsible. But does it mean, I mean, people listen to the podcast now, they think, you know, it's, it's very easy for him to say. But if you make the jump and you leave your job, is it the end of the world or could it be the end of the world? Or some, somehow your brain, your mind, uh, fate will actually give you an answer as to what you will do and you will you know but you've got to you've got to make that jump you've got to make a leap of faith you've got to make a leap of faith and um i've spoken to um hundreds or even thousands of people over the years who have read my books and then made that jump made that leap without without having anything at the other side what i say to people there there are a million practical suggestions and tips that we have for people who are kind of you know um, in fact we do courses in this sort of thing you know how to make that leap because it can be quite scary to go from um, a, a regular monthly wage to having nothing, you know. Teaching somebody to to have the skill or to have, you know, to be successful in the way you've been successful, it was a very difficult thing to do. I mean, to be another Luke Johnson and you know, another Mark Zuckerberg, I mean, you know, that that's difficult to teach, isn't it? It's impossible. That Those two people are, are quite weird. <laughs> you know, I think we all have to understand that um, there's only one Mark Zuckerberg out of, like, the 10 billion population of the planet or whatever it is, and um, going into business is a massive lottery. So what I'm telling people is I'm showing you how or encouraging you, giving you tools and inspiration and support if you want to make a living out of doing the thing that you like. But you do live in a house in North Devon and work from there I mean for me that's the dream that's the ultimate dream well we did do that yeah at what point do you did you make that decision and how did you make that decision I made that decision I mean actually I had a period of uh, earning reasonably well in the late 90s and early 2000s with my old friend and business partner Gav and we had an assistant and we were doing media work and stuff people liked the magazine The Idler that we still produce and they said well could you do some work for us so that was great but after a while, I felt I wanted to, one, write a book, which I'd been sort of half commissioned to do. Um, and I am basically a journalist and a hacker and a writer, and that's my sort of what I really like doing. Also, we had two small children. Um, I didn't really fancy struggling with them in London for the next few years, being in London but not really being able to go out very much. So living in a rented farmhouse in the middle of nowhere was a way of massively reducing our outgoings. Um, and because I knew I wasn't going to be earning so much money, or it was very unlikely to be. Um, and that was quite fun, you know, but we, we uh, as good capitalists, we kept our house in London. We never sold it. Um, and then after 12 or 13 years, the children were now teenagers, um, and we're running a business in London and decided to move back. Moving back to London is quite, quite a big leap in itself, really. What made you move back? Uh, run out of money. <laughs> well, because we, we'd, we'd opened our own bookshop in London um, and we were trying to run that remotely, which we did for two or three years with one or two staff. That was okay. But we decided to get, we wanted to come back to really get behind it. 
if you're in London, you bump into people, you know, and we're in a phase of trying to grow a business, create something. Um, and, you know, the Beatles came to London from Liverpool. I just felt, wow, we, everyone wants to live here. Um, and we can. We've got a house there. That's an incredible stroke of good fortune. Um, and the other problem, actually, with being absolutely in the middle of nowhere with children is that you're in the car the whole time <laughs> driving them around. And our children were going to be like, were like 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, 15, that kind of age. Um, and now they just get on the tube. So life's actually easier. You know, all the decisions I've taken in my life have been about um, what would give me the most freedom. And, you know, yeah, the, dream, the kind of Hugh Fernley Whittingstall dream of living in the country, baking bread, having, having chickens and stuff. That is great. That did give us a lot of freedom. But after a certain point, it was going to be easier to live, live back in town. So what, what's your view on uh, what I would class as idleness heaven, which is retiring? Weirdly, I think creative people don't retire. Uh, I personally enjoy things like editing magazines, writing articles, playing my ukulele or whatever. Um, these are things that I did before I was paid for them from about the age of eight. And uh, coming or doing radio broadcasts, you know, that kind of stuff that I enjoy anyway. I would probably do it unpaid when I'm retired. Um, I'll probably carry on working uh, personally. I think what's difficult about retirement is um, people look forward to it very much. It's the end result of working. Um, and when it happens, often people don't really know what to do with themselves, you know, and it's very common, actually, particularly for men to sometimes just die <laughs> because they don't know what to do. That's why how, books like How to Be Idle are really important. In Business with Bohemians, you describe it, idleness and freedom as opening the boring post and dealing with it and filing your VAT return on time. <laughs> I mean, that doesn't sound like freedom to me. No, it's horrific. That, that's what this book is about. It's the, it's, the, it's the awful stuff that you just have to do if you don't want a job, you know, because if you... I realised pretty quickly, if you, if you do quit your job and become a freelancer, a small entrepreneur, a creative entrepreneur, open your shop on Etsy or whatever it might be, you immediately have to become responsible for your tax returns, for your invoicing. But what I think we need to do is to train ourselves a little bit, you know, because it's like um, doing the plumbing or making a table. Um, the reason it's difficult is because we don't know what we're doing and we revolt against it and it's not really unnatural. But then, you know, when you learn to drive a car, you have to take uh, at least 12 like, hour-long lessons and pass the test. Well, if I'd taken 12 one-on-one one -on -one accounting lessons, um, you know, it wouldn't be so scary, would it? So uh, what I'm trying to say in the book is you need to take a bit of time to train yourself to do these things rather than struggling at spreadsheets and staring at them. I'm a bit and... too lazy for all that, unfortunately. Well, I know. <laughs> I'm, I'm sorry, but you, you, you'll pay for that indolence later. How can Zach make his spreadsheets more bohemian then? Well, I'm not I'm not really getting anywhere here, right? <laughs> Trying to persuade you that in some way spreadsheets are a friend to bohemianism. Well, okay, let me let me give you some um, more kind of ingenious arguments. If, if bohemians are anything like me, in other words, chaotic, scatty, um, tending to being disorganised, but having sort of good ideas and being able to, you know, work pretty fast on a deadline rather than steadily then, yes, you're quite scared of spreadsheets because they seem so boring and scary. But consider this. I think it's also part of the bohemian temperament often actually to quite enjoy doing figures on the backs of envelopes and stuff because it sort of makes you feel a bit more organised if you're naturally chaotic. I'll tell you how it becomes interesting because I went through the last years, um, all, the, all, the, all, you know, all the 
output on my credit card. Went through all. The, I remembered all the restaurants I've been to, all the pubs, everything else over that last year. So it was like a journey through time. So well, there was a bohemian aspect to it, but just remembering, oh, I went there, and then I went there, and then I went there. So that's a very, there's something a... there that there was, you know, just you have a review of your last year just through going through your um, the, your bank balance. Exactly. Or your bank in, in the search of times past, I mean, it's practically priesting the experience, you know, as you say, um, going through your... And, and my accountant says um, what people don't realise is that spreadsheets are a thing of great beauty because you can change one number and all the other numbers change. And um, so one of my chapters is called Learn to Love the Spreadsheet. I'd like to say that as an art school graduate, I'm a big fan of a spreadsheet. Why is that? Because I just find them very satisfying. They are, you know, they, if you see see them as a kind of um, artwork, you know, and it's, a, it's part of your creativity is to create this beautiful spreadsheet, which you know the VAT man is going to really get a lot of pleasure out of. <laughs> okay, well we're reaching the end of the show now, so I just wanted to end with one final question, which is, what is your most bohemian trait? My most bohemian trait is probably a mixture of lying in bed too long in the morning and drinking too much beer in the evening and they're obviously related well tom we'll let you get back to being idle thank you very much for coming thanks to tom hodgkinson this has been city am unregulated Get unregulated on cityam.com, subscribe with iTunes, Audio Boom, or use RSS with your favourite podcast player. City AM Unregulated is an Audio Boom production.